Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Hello, welcome to the Zane Lowe interview series. Eddie Francis here again from Zane's show on Apple Music One. Zane is back next week, but in the meantime, bringing you one more conversation from the man himself. A couple of weeks ago, Zane traveled to Detroit for a super intimate tour around Third Man Records HQ from the factory's very own Willy Wonka, Jack White. Jack White is an innovator, a musical futurist, changing the industry one vinyl press at a time. With his new album, Fear of the Dawn, on the horizon, Zane caught up with Jack White for a wide-ranging conversation and an all-access pass to the mind and world of the White Stripes legend. Enjoy. So this is where Third Man really began. It really, uh, yeah. That's the original yellow from the wall. What? You had it all figured out <laughs> from day one. The idea of the yellow and the three and the whole thing, and you stay true to that. These are the streets that Jack White grew up in, the youngest of 10 kids who let his imagination run wild. You realize that we've kind of gotten wrong the whole time, calling him a man for the ages or a renaissance figure. Jack White is a futurist. Spend the day with Jack White in Detroit, and you'll realize that what he's built is a future that you can hear, see, and touch. You know, I already came for the for the shot, thing, right? I, I figured it was going to be part of the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> this is it's just the, the barrier to entry for me to come back with a yeah. a new suitcase full of swag. Yeah. So I've been to Nashville. Love Nashville. Yeah. Love the spot there. Yeah. But this is another level. No yeah. disrespect, Nashville, but this sure, feels sure. like another level. Yeah, yeah. It's like um, we we had more room to play with. Yeah. Nashville. You know, we didn't intend to do anything like that. It wasn't going to be a public place. It was yeah. just going to be a place where I stored my gear and all that. So it, it slowly became. Oh, what if we had a little shop where we sold a couple things up front thinking, no one's going to come to that. I mean, it'll be like a, maybe a record collector would stop in or something and think it was interesting. Third Man Nashville was the first time I really had an empty room to design it however I wanted. And I just started slowly, uh, you know, doing it sort of room by room or idea by idea, thinking about it. But then once I started to roll in my brain, like how I wanted the general idea of mm. the building... It was a recession in like 2008, and yeah, I, 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 so I asked uh, the crew, was, would you guys work in two shifts, and, and, and could we all get this all done in three months? And everyone was really excited about it because you know, people were out of work or yeah. there wasn't much work around, so they thought this would be a great idea, and it was like good timing for everything. Yeah. Had people moving in from London to come work there, the Ben and Ben, and um, so that was exciting. It, wasn't, it was only going to have like you know, five employees, and that was going to be it. Yeah. But, London was the real test for me because I had to, during the pandemic, I had to design it over FaceTime. So <laughs> That must have been horrible. No, it's not, not the best way to do it. But How do you even trust the palette? Someone's showing you. Like it's... You, you can't. You just have to keep getting emails and, and looking at it over and over again. But what, ironically, or whatever the word is, it ended up being more accurate than when I was standing there. Right See, technology there wins. It you won. can find it all you it want. Won. There's so many things now I can't do anymore that... Um, during the pandemic, like trying to get a COVID test and yeah. pull into a place and said, uh, you had to scan the QR code. And I'm like, well, I don't have a phone. And they were, yeah. they were like, well, then you can't get a test. And I'm like, ah, man, or picking up my kids from school. You have to call when you pick them up. And so you're telling us you finally have a cell phone? I don't have one yet, but I think my days are numbered. fucking <laughs> mind-blowing. I mean, how you've gotten through this. But, man, look what you built. What about your kids? They don't have them either? They do. They, they do. do. That's cool. So you're able to separate your own beliefs and how it, how it makes you feel versus what you think their needs are as modern kids. You know, I think every parent I know, you know, complains about how much their kids use phones. And it's, but I, th I had a sort of little epiphany a couple of years ago, which was, it's a little bit strange for me to say, hey, you're on your phone too much, you're on your phone too much, and then turn to my adult friends who are on it just as much as they are. I wanted to ask you, 
what is the fundamental, most important thing that you would say to anyone watching this about getting to a place where you're building something like this? Mm. Like someone who's watching this conversation, just to start the ball rolling, yeah. is going to go, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin mm. to get to a place where Jack's at, where he, he's able to build a world around his passion mm. that he can ultimately dive in and dive out of and no one can interrupt. What is, what's, what's the starting point for someone who doesn't know where that begins? My first guess would it would be that it sort of has to be without you trying. It's, it's, it's happening without you even realizing it. You have to do it. You, you couldn't even help if you wanted to. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to pick up an instrument in the house if it's there. I can't stop myself. Yeah. And that's the, if you don't already have that naturally, it's, it's an uphill climb, I think. Um, so that's, that's that one part of it. But then the other part is sort of, you know, finding that little zone, whatever it is. I, you know, I used to say there's a song in the Oyster Shapes called the, the Little Room about this topic you're asking about. And, and I know I think we had that in the Oyster We had a little room, you know, and it was in the attic and we painted it our color scheme and we had everything that was ours there. That was our little world. It was hot as hell. It was in an attic in Detroit. It was 110 degrees and nobody would find this a comfortable, really a comfortable place exactly, but it didn't matter. It was where the creativity was going to happen. Well, one of the things I love about what you've done with Dirt Man is that you've made it available to, to everyone. Mm. You know, most people build their world, like Paisley Park to some degree, but it always felt like it was Prince's Kingdom. Sure, sure. This, I feel like, is the people's space. Mm -hmm. Everywhere you look, there's collaborations you've done, opportunities for other artists to create. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that you see that. This is for other people to play with. This is a palette for other people to create, is my hope. I don't want it to be Jack White Records, you know. Uh, I want it to be for other people to come in and, and, and discover something that, God, I wish I had seen that on tour when I was in the van, when we pulled into a town, like, oh, I wish, oh they had our vinyl recording booth. Mm. I always thought I was going to see one in Belgium or something on tour or whatever, and it just it didn't exist anymore. Or what if you could record on stage in a, play, in a venue? Wouldn't it be great when you play these small clubs if you had the option that they had a small booth where you could record the show to tape? Yeah. Just a, just a two-track or something. I'm like, ah, if I don't want a bar, I would do that, you know? Well, even when, you know, you were going through that, that phase of building this out, 2008 coincided with the beginning of this kind of unknown period for the strike between touring and then the ultimate announcement that it was no more yeah. and so you get to focus on this but you're also going out there and you, you, you're playing in bands and you're finding other collaborators and ways to stay a part of a group and I think it's a miracle we've got solo records from you at all I, I, I don't even know whether that was ever the intention was the idea of being a solo artist for the longest time a strange concept to you? It was, and I think maybe about, I don't know what it was, maybe 2010, I, I got the feeling, yeah, I don't think we're going to be making any more White Stripes records, uh, you know, just when we, me and Meg would hang out or talk, it, it seemed like, yeah, this isn't going to be happening anymore. Yeah. But we didn't want to tell anybody, oh, not, no point in telling people that, you never know, five years from now, things might change. Yeah. But then I had a kind of thing like, maybe it's, it'd be healthier for me and her and for the fans because I'm about to release a solo record, and if, mm -hmm. if I hear someone say, well, why didn't you just make a White Strips record? I don't want to hear that, you know? And if, uh, so that was one of the reasons for, for the health part of it. That aesthetic that came from the little room became something the whole world knew what it was. I guess I've never asked you this. Did it get tiresome? Did it get tough to maintain? You know, after a while to feel like you don't have to distract anybody anymore. You're really good now. You play mm -hmm. really well. You've got your own sound but you're still attached to these things that you sort of created at the beginning in mm -hmm. order to just survive. I first assumed when people started to get interested in us, we'd already made three albums and a ton of 45s. It was strange, nobody, why now? Like, why, we always just assumed, yeah, we can do 
This would be nice. When we first came to England, we were just going to hang out with the, the, the English garage rock scene, the, the Billy Childish people and his bands and, and Holly Golightly and, and play a few shows with them and go home. That that was it, you know? And uh, we, I remember us thinking about, you know, oh, we're going to actually lose a couple hundred bucks in this in this little trip, and or are we going to actually break even? And uh, John Peel and, and these things started to happen. And so at every step after that, we thought, oh, they're, they're going to tire of this in two seconds. Next month, it'll be on to somebody else. And... And then uh, we would see, you know, the different cover of Enemy would come out. Like, okay, good, there's a new like uh, rock and roll savior came out this week. Yeah. Uh, like, it's uh, whatever. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Now we can just go back to just being garage rock band. But uh, it kept pushing. It kept going that way. And that's when it started to get strange. We're like, wait a minute. And I remember Meg saying, oh, people are, are not going to understand my drumming style in the mainstream. I mean, this is, you know, the mainstream doesn't understand Mo Tucker from the Velvet Underground and Peg from the Gories and. Uh, up there, these are influences, you know, to to us that made sense to us. You know, when we played and Meg played in that style, we all our guys were was those badass, you know, and 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 way better than someone who was, you know, doing had 500 drums set up or whatever. Oh, instinct. That's yeah. what I hear on Fear of the Dawn. You played everything yourself. Pretty much most most of it. Most yeah. of it. Yeah. It just explodes out of the speakers. Mm. It's not the kind of record I would imagine one person to make during two years where the world is kind of mm. shut down, but maybe it is. Maybe that's where the energy goes when you don't have a normal day-to-day -day thing to kind of apply yourself to. Mm -hmm. You know, my first question about this album is where did the, the, the kind of overall sonic design come from? Because I've never heard you kick the door open like this before. I think there's a few years of experience that I had a little bit of an epiphany during it, which was, wow, I'm actually better at this kind of production on this chorus right now than I was 10 years ago and, and the techniques I've gathered up and having your own studio for a while and you start remembering these certain things then you start feeling ah oh, damn god I wish I had that back in 1998 when then I wanted to make that run sound I wish yeah. I just I, all I had to do was just get that one mic that wasn't that expensive I, that, I, we would have gotten it but it, it is nice that time goes on and you get better at certain things in the studio. It's funny because Fear of the Dawn, and maybe I'm completely missing the point, or maybe you did this all with a razor blade and a two-inch tape, mm -hmm. but to me it feels like very cut and paste, and it almost feels like you're a technology-based record. It's very much so, and it's many, many tracks. Uh, you know, I don't know how many, but there's dozens and dozens of tracks, and you know, I, so I, you never really, I never used to do that, but yeah, because now, um, what's a great example is on this is uh, uh, Taking Me Back, the electric uh -huh. version, and Taking Me Back, the, the gentle, gentle version. version. The, the, the Taking Me Back electric is super digital, super uh, recorded straight into the board and and Pro Tools and edited perfectly and I constructed that song whereas the Taking Me Back Gently version is several new amazing musicians in a room recorded through microphones through 1930s RCA mic pre's onto tape and performing live all at the same time and um it just, I wanted to show people, like, look, it doesn't really matter what the song is, it's how you say it. You can say the same song in two totally different ways. I thought it was such a cool way to try to, to bookend that these two oh, albums keep both versions. the same. Oh, thanks. It, it's cool to uh, show people that, yeah, you can use that technology to your advantage. If, if uh, the experience behind playing with those guys in that room, how many times I've played with those guys in that room, is it, it gives you the ability to, to, to manipulate that technology to do the heavy digital version. That's why it's so much to unpack here because, yeah. <laughs> because I mean, this is, in case you're ever wondering whether or not Jack White is a charming individual, you just got a great example of it because this is someone who's just been like, technology. No, I know you're a futurist, but when it comes to recording for a while, man, I've, I've, I've read the interviews. You're just like, it doesn't make things better. And sure. But what you're saying is that 
I guess that. Wait, what are you saying? Like you get it now? <laughs> well, I got it then. It's the kind of thing like, well, you could say, could you hand me like some sort of heavy metal, like hair metal guitar? Yeah. Could I make it sound good? Yeah, I can get some you sounds out of that. it. I'll get some sounds out of it. Yeah. But if you're going to ask me what I would choose, you know, be that. And, and at that time, you know, tape was dying and analog was dying. And the scene we came from was definitely trying to say, whoa, whoa, no, no, not yet, not yet. You know, this, there's yeah. still so much good about it. And the idea of editing, um, all the years of the razor blade editing gets you to a point where I don't want to waste my energy on that when I could put that energy to this now. And <laughs> let me just do that. I've proven to myself I can do it this way. It's not like you've gone to technology and said, I'm going to try and make it feel like my other records. I'm going to sure, fake yeah. the feel. Sure. It's very cut and paste in that regard. Yeah. It must be fun. Every time I go in, I'm trying to do something I haven't done before. And it's not like something that other people have never done before. It's just something I have never done before. I want to try to do it this way. I want to write the song from this perspective. I want to write the song on the bass this time instead of the guitar. Whatever it is yeah. to get me to a different zone so I'm, I'm not repeating myself. So that's always progressing in that way. So this album was um, me playing all the instruments on a lot of tracks. Mm. Just based on the lockdown and not really being able to do sessions with other people. It's hard to. I made mistakes. Uh, you know, I would play drums last, which you're not supposed to do. But then I started to feed off of that. I thought I liked that. I liked that it was wrong, you know, and it was, I, I, you know, you, you speed up and slow down and we had to go back and fix it. You know, there was moments in time here I had to say, okay, this is way past where I would have Gone. stopped working on this song. Crazy. I gotta, I gotta stop now. And, and I'm usually really good at knowing when to stop uh, for my own taste. Yeah. Uh, but so this is, yeah, it shows it's, it's, it's delicate. When you have uh, like eight tracks only, there's not much you can do. If you, someone says you can have as many tracks as you want, yeah. now you got to be your own boss. You've got to be hard on yourself. You start making Heidi It's time to stop. Yeah. You start making Heidi <laughs> Yeah. Wow. I mean, that song is so crazy. It's like mm. I tried to find comparative reference points and... I could just touch on things. I couldn't even really connect it to anything oh, concrete because it feels great. totally unique. Oh, that's so great to hear that. And it's great hearing mm. you and Tip because I'd heard the rumor for the longest time that you guys were potentially doing something or whatever. So yeah. let's just talk a little bit about working with Q-Tip and why he chose him as, a, as one of the only, if not the only collaborator on this record. Mm -hmm. Well, he's brilliant, you know, and I, I remember I was in a room once with him and Busta Rhymes and I... <laughs> was telling Busta that I really like the microphone sound on uh, Microphone Fiend, yeah. uh, the Eric B. and Rakim, and I loved the tone of that. And, you know, I said, Busta, your voice and Q-Tip's voice uh, are, are some of my favorites, and the, but their delivery is so unique and so powerful. So Q-Tip and I got, got along great in, in person like that and, and working on, he, he invited me to work on tracks on the Tribe Called Quest album. But then while, by, by the time uh, I was working on this, this album, there was several tracks Q-Chip was sending back and forth with me. I asked him if he wouldn't mind, like, let's fo like could we focus on finishing this one track, Heidi Hill, because I think it really fits in with this record. I sent him the music with the Cab Calloway sample on it, and he sent back us, him scatting in that way five minutes later. Mm. So I knew he was inspired instantaneously. I thought, oh, wow, he's, he, this is great. This is going to be great, you know? But yeah, by the time I ended up getting to mixing, I think, what, what, what genre is this song? I have no idea. If someone was going to label it, I don't know. It's like, it's really interesting. If I didn't know that Cab Calloway sample, I, I would have thought it was you. I mean, it's hard not to... My friends all still think it's me. At the end, it yeah. sounds like you're hitting that kind of <laughs> traditional tone that you have when you decide to take it to church, you know? It's funny because the White Stripes covered 
Cab Calloway's version of St. James Infirmary Blues on our first album, mm -hmm. and that was from the Fleischer Brothers cartoon where Cab Calloway sings it in the cartoon. So we were covering him on that, and I was trying to definitely sing like him, like in, the him. in the cartoon. Yeah. And then maybe it's one of those moments that kind of stuck with me, and that's in the back of my head. I mean, like, I know like hip, my, uh, Beatles' version of Hippie Hippie Shake, the way Paul McCartney sings Hippie Hippie Shake on the BBC recordings is definitely part of my high singing. I didn't realize that how many times I listened to that while I was working at an upholstery shop that that kind of bled into my when I, when I hit high notes like that I'm doing hippie hippie shake. This is a cheeky question. I got to ask it. Like what else is in the vault because you know the other rumor that we have is that you and Jay-Z are sitting on heat. Yeah. That there's yeah. all kinds of things that you know you've got kicking around. Yeah. Um that's true, <laughs> but uh, it, uh, it's 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 not it's not me who doesn't finish stuff. Uh, so it's uh, <laughs> I'm not the guy. Yeah. I'm not that guy. Yeah. No, I'm just, I'm just teasing. But uh, you know, I'm I'm that, I'm I'm more the personality. Like I'll I'll, I'll be there tomorrow. You know. You know. So it, it's uh, different working styles. Uh, so some of that stuff uh, I think we'll see the light of day if, uh, when those guys aren't, aren't busy with other projects and stuff. Mm. Is it fun working with Jay? Yeah, it, it was. It's so different, you know, because. When I went in and studied with him, there was just one microphone, you know, that which is I kind of was, whoa, what? <laughs> Where are the other microphones, you know? And but I, you know, I was like, oh wow, okay, yeah, I guess why would you need another microphone? Yeah. Right? So yeah, it's different worlds, and and he was asking to guru, was engineering, and uh, um, what's he doing? What's Jack doing? I, and, I think someone was telling me, and Guru was saying, "Yeah, and then this is how he does it. You know, he's he's playing the drums now. He's going to put the bass line down, and that. And so Jay was learning about the way I did it, and, and I was, so I was learning about the way he did it. I just like seeing anybody use a method. Yeah. If you and if you see anyone using any method, it's really really interesting. And Q-Tip has, uh, you know, he's got Sly Stone's Flickinger console. Yeah. He's got Frank Zappa's tape machine over. I mean, he's he loves music, and he knows it. He knows it very very well. He was the only one when we, I was playing tracks." From this album, he's the only person that said on the, the song "Into the Twilight." He said, "Oh, that's." Do it. Yo, Jack. Yo, Jack. He's like, "Yeah, Jack, that's in Manhattan. Shares with Sam Brown there." And uh, uh, I'm like, <laughs> I'm "Like, man, how did you know that? That's how much he loves music and how well he knows. He's like an encyclopedia." About. I mean, have you sort of been faithful to what you've recorded and put out, or are you sort of correlating? Is there, is there a vault? I'm not too much of like like. Like maybe how Prince is with they, they say hundreds of songs or, yeah. or Jimi Hendrix songs. And I I um I usually finish a song when I when I work on it, right. uh, which was what I was joking about with those guys earlier. The, yeah. the I, I that my style is is to it's hard for me to leave something open ended. Uh, you know I described Paisley Park when I went through a tour there as like the yeah. Wonka factory. You know. Mm -hmm. Did you get, ever get to play with Prince or do anything like that? I, I, uh, I met Prince one time. Yes. What happened? No, it was incredible. He came to see uh, Zoe Kravitz sing with my wife at the time, Karen Nelson, had a, a musical troupe called the Citizens Band. The show started and the lights went down and somebody bumped me and said, that's Prince sitting right behind us. So I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Prince. He started to talk about nobility and they started to talk about, I mean, the phrase he had said to me is like, no, no one's going to tell you how to play your guitar, Jack. And uh, he talked about the James Bond song I had just done and I said, Oh, he said, I really like it. And I said, oh, that's great, because some people, you know, it's like making a song for Star Wars fans or something. I mean, you're throwing yourself into the sea of, yeah. it's a very divisive track. And uh, he goes, oh, I thought it was real strong. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you want. I want to talk about the second album that's coming out, which is this beautiful, lilting, lovely, for the most part, gentle album. Mm. Um, but it's still dealing with some 
beautifully heavy subject matter. Mm. There's some heartbreaking songs on there, man. I try to get out of my own place and go be somebody else and be a different character and think about, well, who, what would that character do in this scenario? It's just interesting that, that socially things have changed. And, and even in the 60s, uh, folk singers um, initially were not singing about themselves. Mm. They were singing about big issues mm. and big movements and big ideas. And then it became probably most likely through Bob Dylan, the idea of at least he's giving the image, the, the illusion that he's talking about himself, mm -hmm. a, a one man against the world, but maybe he isn't, which was what's brilliant about him, that, it's, that it has more levels to it. So now it's very popular now for most singer songwriters to say this song is about this boyfriend I had and our breakup and mm. maybe you know this guy too. You might know this boyfriend or whatever. It's a very popular notion to, to publicly air that, uh, things like that that are very personal. You think it's we a marketing tool? No, I'm just saying kind that it's, it's the style of the time, you know, yeah. I think. Yeah. Let me rephrase that. Yeah. I think I'm saying it's a marketing tool. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I think it can be. I think, I think you're right. But I think that, that's, that also connects beautifully with the idea of, of, of the way social media and accessibility and all yeah. these things play into the yeah. idea of distribution of art, right? It used to be you put the art out. If it connected with somebody, it would travel word of mouth. Maybe a label would put a bit of money behind it, try to amplify it. Yeah. Good luck. Sure. If you're a success, welcome yeah. back. If you're not, sayonara, right? Yeah. Now yeah. it's like. There's so many tools you can use, mm -hmm. and I think artists are just sort of in the mindset of using them all. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's, it's there to be used. When somebody said something like, you know, in, in 1970, a band would have taken three photographs, and now it's 3,000. Yeah. Uh, and um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's, just, it's, it's, it's If there's people interested, yeah. it's what's inspiring you. You know, everyone has their different things they tap into. Yeah. Yeah. I, like, I don't want to see anything be too across the board. You know, I like to see just it mixed up and see different methods coming from different people. What you do you do with yeah. your time, though, when you're not on your phone and you're not occupied the way that many of us, most of us, are? So what is life like on the outside of all of that? I missed my flight to Detroit yesterday because the bag cut off like the, 45 minutes before they couldn't take the bag. So now I'm stuck and I don't have a phone, so I can't call an Uber. So I had to go catch a cab home and I don't have a phone to call somebody to pick me up. Okay. Uh, and I didn't see any pay for it. So, okay. I, I'm not complaining. I don't, I don't care. I'm in a, now I'm in a new scenario that I would have never been in. And what happens? I end up talking to this amazing cab driver and learning about his family and how he moved from Minneapolis and all this. And, and, but I, there's a 20 people in line for the cab and I'm the only one standing there. Everyone's on their phones and I'm the only one standing there with nobody to talk to. And I don't know. What, and I, I started thinking, wow, what did we all do before? Did we all just kind of yeah. stare? I guess we yeah. stared and started conversations and yeah. all that. That's what we're it's doing. so, the only time I, I really don't like it is in the, the doctor's office because I don't have anything to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the plan falls apart. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting around in the third man store slash live performance space was awesome. But everywhere you looked, there are doors and corridors that take you deeper into the manufacturing side of third man. So by the time we stood up and had a stretch, I was ready for the tour. So we're in the mastering room. Third man mastering, yeah. I mean, which is the, which is the captain's seat? You go, you go here. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> All right. Love it. So... I actually want to ask a really simple question, which is for people who don't really know the importance of mastering a record, yeah. let alone why you would want to extend into third man mastering room, mm -hmm. 
in your own words, why does mastering matter? Mastering is sort of like that magic dust at the end of a recording where you need somebody to make sure that every song on your album is uh, a similar volume. For vinyl, you need to make sure there's not some peaking uh, uh, frequency that's gonna make the needle pop out of the groove physically. Yeah. On radio, you need to be, uh, as they call it, the, the loudness wars for many mm -hmm. years of being compatible with uh, what's being played before and after your song. It's, it's that final magic dust of making the record just perfect for all formats. Say you create a song like Heidi Ho and you get to a point in your studio because you recorded mm -hmm. most of the music at home, right? During yeah. quarantine in your own yeah. space. So you keep that, that, that very local. From finishing that song and getting it to a point where you're really happy with it, mm -hmm. how long could you, if you wanted to, how long would it take for you to run it through the Third Man universe and get it ready to go so I could hold a piece of vinyl in my hand? We did the, this one thing that was sort of gimmicky, but it was, I thought, very cool to showcase uh, what can happen at Third Man, which was the world's fastest record. And I recorded, recorded with my band on stage in front of a crowd. It was to acetate. We, we, we went through the Rupert Neve console in Nashville. Uh -huh. uh, we had the same capability here in Detroit. From stage, through this Neve console, to the vinyl lathe. And we took that over and made the Metal Masters uh, at United Pressing in, in Nashville and we had the record for sale four hours later. I was able to sell it in the store, right in front of the store. So that was four hours, soup to nuts, you know, recording and actually pressing it. It was a live recording, but it proved the point. Yeah. That's how fast you could do it in the perfect world with everyone's yeah. lined up and people are handing off and police escort and all this stuff. So the reason we're in here, obviously, is apart from the fact that this is one of the latest additions to the Third Man experience, right? Yeah. I mean, you waited to, to, to do a mastering room. And, yeah. and so how important, before we get to what we're going to listen to, how important was it to you to have this room, to, mm -hmm. to be able to complete, ultimately, the creative cycle? It was nice that we had this empty space. We actually had this where I could design a mastering room. And I liked it because it wasn't too big. Uh, so I got really excited about what materials I would want to use. And the, one of the materials I had saved was this really amazing aluminum foam, which has incredible uh, sound absorbing qualities. But it's really uh, sort of dangerous. It can, it's sharp, like you could cut your finger uh, rubbing your hand over really? it. Really? Yeah. So that was a great thing. I almost did the entire wall, but I wanted to have the mm. Sun Records uh, acoustic tiles as part of it, because that's really a, a third man design concept we've, we've, we've woven through all the third man locations. Yeah. It was a wonderful experience being able to design this and to be able to put it to use for what we're doing and to also be able to, the outside world could use this as a mastering service too. And obviously it specializes in cutting the vinyl master. Yeah, so it's great, man, because you have the ability to do so much here for, to finish the record. And, it, and it, now it gives us that these extra piece of DIY to the max, which is what I think Third man is, you know, being able to write and record and do the artwork and and do the mastering in-house and do the mixing and do the actual vinyl cutting and actual pressing the record at the pressing plant all on, in our world. There's only two things left that we don't do yet, which is make the paper sleeves yeah. for the records and make the metal mothers, the metal stampers. And you going to do those? I would like to, but that's getting into like a, a big investment. If I'm going to do it, I want to do it for real, like yeah, a yeah. huge warehouse where we can really do lots with it. You know, I want to be able to press, you know, thousands and thousands of record sleeves if we do that. It's easy to forget that you were once part of the music industry at all. Because I don't mm. consider this to be the music industry. Sure, this sure. is yours. This is, 
you can create and share and collaborate in any capacity you want. This is mm. very much away from the music industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, the industry being labels and a lot of the um, and myself and and a lot of the tent poles through which artists tend to sort of go in order mm. to reach people. You could not talk to me. You could not do any of it. You could f- d- deliver direct to fans. So yeah, yeah. my question, Jack, is like. Did you enjoy your time in the music industry at all? <laughs> yes, this I would did, suggest yeah. no, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I did. I really did, and I, I learned a lot. I abandoned like sort of like that hipster cynicism of uh, of things pretty quickly. You know, we were on a we were on a one man label for years. Uh, the first three albums of the White Stripes. We were on a lot of little bedroom labels, punk labels uh, for forty mm-hmm. fives and things. So we got in that side of it, and then we got signed to major labels, and I got that side of it too and then started to do publishing deals and things like that and try to learn about that. And you just kind of start seeing all the things we complained about. Once you become in a position of power yourself where you get to call the shots on it, you start realizing that, oh, wow, that was a lot of us just whining and looking for somebody to blame. Yeah. You know, now that I'm in that spot and I can see, oh, okay, well, yeah, that was my problem. That was my fault. I had to abandon all that. Like, no, it's not anybody's fault, you know, um, except your own in, in a lot of ways when you're an artist. And, and you, yeah, there'll be times where people may make mistakes so what who cares They're human beings but the whole point is like you're the artist you're going to do it and if you're writing powerful things nothing is going to stop it and this one's going to come out right I think you, mm. we were going to play Heidi Ho in here yeah, yeah. to get a sense of it yeah let me see if I can manipulate this so you mastered your both your, your new albums this year in here yes both albums were mastered here wow. so um and what was great is the mastering engineer, Bill Skibby, he took on engineering duties for the finishing of the album in Nashville with mm. me in my home studio. Mm. So he came aboard at the last quarter and took it across the finish line with me. So it was great to have him also master, you know. You were so ready for quarantine without even realizing it. I mean, you had everything <laughs> yeah, you here. Lucky, you, yeah. you, know, you got lucky. I mean, yeah. I, I think if you hadn't had music ready by the time we all came back together, I would have f***ing hated you. <laughs> <laughs> I think every artist would have been like, you're the only guy who could do you it. Do something? You're yeah. the only one who <laughs> could. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, let me see if I can click on here. This is, this, okay. Is that all I need to do or double click? Yeah, probably a double click. Yes, yeah. And technology it tends to be a double click. You know. That's what I thought. Yeah. But it's not. I don't hear no sound. I might have to call this guy. No. Maybe it's this one. This is the promo right? Oh, I think I know what it is. That. It's the promo right? This is spacebar, not a click. There is this sense of anything is possible at Third Man. Just take a look at the furniture. You might sit in a chair and it has a speaker built inside of it, or this one is coated in melted-down vinyl. Someone had mentioned to me years ago, yeah, you know, if those old uh, 78s, yeah. they're just lacquer. You can just put them in lacquer thinner and they'll turn to liquid. So it's in the finish of the, the black uh, finish on the wood is the vinyl. The crazy thing is when you say it like that, it makes total sense. Right, Why yeah, couldn't yeah. you melt that down and use it as a, as a lacquer? How do you get to that place where you store that and you go, great, I'm going to put that on a chair. Like, Some, a, friend, a friend had uh, mentioned to me, Kevin Carrico, he, we worked on the, for, the record in space yeah. idea, and he said, Do you, you, would you ever think that maybe you could melt down those records and, and refinish a cabinet in your house with it? That would be cool. I thought, wow. I kept that in my back pocket for a second. And when I wanted to do a piece for when we did this location in Detroit, I wanted to do a, a furniture piece that I did my, myself. And I, I found this a triple, uh, it came from a Masonic temple. So this was a tribute to the, uh, the Nashville location. The doors are blue, red, and, and yellow at the Nashville location. So it's like a way to connect 
both places. This is really what success represents, isn't it? Like, more than anything else, having the ability to be able to invest it into something which it just gives you, no one can ever turn this off. No one can ever take this away. That's my hope, is that give, give a, an easel and a canvas to other artists to do something with, yeah. then it can live on forever, as long as people want it to, as long as people can get something out of it. That's the hope with it, you know, there's a stage for people to play, there's a rack for people it's to put the records so on. It's just free, I mean, I know it's not free. <laughs> By free, I mean, it just reminds me of like, like, like Lawrence, like Domino, like yeah. Domino's attitude of like, we don't drop artists. Yeah. I always loved that. It's great. Yep. It just removes that mm -hmm. expectation yeah. and allows you to be the truest sense of self. And yeah. I kind of feel that that's really alive here. We, we feel that in some of the things we have going over there, which one is trying to keep records in print. As long as we initially made them, why would they ever be out of print? Yeah. You know, I never understood records being out of print. With every release we do, we do a limited version and a black vinyl version that stays in print forever. Right. So that's our ethos. And then uh, even if it's just one box left, at least if someone ever wants to hear that, they yeah, can buy can it and it's it. still there. And if that box runs out, we just throw it back up again. Yeah. It's, that's why it's nice to have the pressing pad because we can you know, do that with our own records. See, collectible and accessible. You can have both. Yes. Look at you, huh? You're like the <laughs> modern day record industry and cryptocurrency. <laughs> all, right. all wrapped up into one. The crazy thing is that the, the kind of, the central hub of everything is sort of here. Yeah. This is the manufacturing. Yeah. This is the place where the dream truly comes true, right? Yeah, and it was, one idea was not just just have a pressing plant, but could you have a pressing plant that was visible from a record store? Yeah, yeah. Maybe the, for the first time ever, you yeah. know, people could actually buy a record. Oh, why don't you come over here? That's where we pressed it. This right is there. The, one of the greatest things about mm -hmm. it because it's, it's sort of intimidating walking into it. Right, right, Because right. there's so much machinery at play. Yeah. It's kind of overwhelming. Yeah, it's, it's wild. And it's also kind of really green in a way because it's really only water and steam that's being used. It's not like hazardous chemicals. Yeah. The, the vinyl is PVC, so it's like PVC pipes in your house. Yeah. I mean, that, if yeah, left, takes a long time to biodegrade and all that. But other than that, uh, everything else is pretty clean. It's not like it's using some noxious stuff to make this record. Everyone's got an idea of what you guys are working on and what's coming through. Yeah, this is great. Just so people, when they come in, they can see. Uh, what's on each press. Yeah, but uh, obviously the thing we're most proud of right now is number one is Fear of the Dawn is up there and that's uh, the culmination of, yeah, coming, writing that in Third Man Studio in Nashville, working through our department there and our hive there on all the way to yeah. right now it's on the press. Yeah. We yeah. can pull one off. So this is you? Yes, this is the indie variant. So what's the indie variant? So this is uh, for uh, limited edition for independent record stores. Wow. Um, blue and white marble. Do you want to take a record off the press? Uh, yeah. Come on. So, yeah. this button on here, yeah. this side, yeah. and this button on that side, mm -hmm. so that you can't uh, accidentally put your hand in there. Yep. He's got the puck in there. That's so called the puck. This, and, and this is made out of? This is the blue and white swirled yeah. marble uh, from coming out of the extruder here. Yeah. All right, here so we go. Now. That is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. <laughs> how, so, many, how many can you do in a day? Mm, this whole plant is um, upwards of 5,000. That's day. amazing. What's the backlog? Oh, uh, 10 months. So. Yeah. Okay, so now, yeah. take it off. Yeah. Grab it by yeah. the edge. Yeah. And then just and bring take it, it over here it to the trimmer. Yeah. So put it on there. Yeah. There you go. And, and then you're about to trim the fat. Right. Now let go. Done. Now here's your record. It's your copy. <laughs> Not bad. That is so awesome. That is so awesome. I'm so glad you got to do that. Dude, thank you so yeah. much. Oh my so God, it's good. crazy. It's like warm bread. Yeah, it is. It's, it's like, like warm yeah. bread. 
you kind of want it to stay warm forever. Exactly, you know? yeah. This is the Carol King. Uh, yeah. Live in Central Park as part of our subscription club. Yep. Jack, to your memory, when you started to manufacture vinyl again, and really, to your point, you and some of your peers started to really focus on, on yes. manufacturing records and, and making sure that that didn't die. Yeah. Um, what was the difference then between then and now? Like, how much have you seen vinyl become this kind of thing that people wanted? Jam did a great job in the early 90s keeping it alive. And then house DJs kept it alive in the late 90s, and then some of us garage rockers. And then by the time the early 2000s, the White Stripes, we were holding it up on every record, on, on every TV show we were on. Could you hold up the record and not the CD? And I remember us getting asked, like, why would you, why would you want us to do that? To the when we came out with Elephant, what was that, 2003? Yeah. That was, we sent out the record on vinyl to journalists, yeah. which was a bold move. That was a huge statement we wanted to make about vinyl at that time. So then you fast forward to 2009 when we opened Third Man in Nashville, and we started to do these different variants, trying to focus on split colors and tri-color records and glow-in-the-dark records, and yeah. just trying to turn people on, like, look at what you can do with this format. Let's think of things that have never been done with this format. So yeah, within the next few years, the lines around the block that were happening at Third Man, uh, you started to see a couple years later a record store day, and then record stores in Nashville and Detroit, we started seeing those lines too, lining up for limited edition variants. All the way up to now, we have the Olivia Rodrigo, Taylor Swift, Paul McCartney coming out with nine variants of an album on, on vinyl. Yes, yeah, amazing. It's crazy. That's outstanding. How many pressing plants were actually up and functioning in, in the United States of America before you guys started, you know, with... Uh, not many. I think less than 10, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Has that changed? Yeah, yeah there, are, there are new plants popping up every year. Now, I think there's four new plants in America this year that are opening up, which is amazing. But it's still not enough, which is why there's a 10-month wait. And that's my, uh, my one-man uh, goal now on every interview I do is just, you know, to say on camera yeah. to the major record labels to please build plants again like this because, yeah. It's time for them to realize it's not just a fad. 10 years has gone by, 12 years has gone by. It's time for them to say, a drop in the bucket, build a pressing plant for Warner Brothers, pressing plant for Universal, yeah. pressing plant for Sony. Yeah. Because it's just, it shouldn't be guys like me uh, having to hold on to, uh, to, to, to carry the load here. I mean, they yeah. could do it so easily. But you know what is, it, the, the amount of times I've spoken to artists, and artists with, you know, releasing big records, Taylor yeah. Swift, people like that, you know, what's the delay? Why yeah. did it take you six months? Right. I was waiting for the vinyl. Yeah. I was waiting for the vinyl. Yeah, and yeah. I love the fact that artists are waiting yeah. for the vinyl to yeah. come out a lot of times before they do press up. You mind if we steal a couple pieces? Yeah, take that and then this cover? Yep. Take it Thanks, man. Right. All right. Wow. Let's put it all together. Thank you, bro. This is so great, man. It's unbelievable. Excellent. I love it. Not many people get to press their own nah, dude. copy of the record on their shelf at home, right? You remember Natalie Cole did the album Unforgettable? Yeah, of course. Yeah, me and my mom listened to that. She's, you know, she's born in 1930, so yeah. big band music. She loved that record. We listened. It was so great that we pressed it here. I got to take it off the press and go and give it to her. It's just one of one. Yeah. She packages records up here. I sent Beyonce a, a little video clip of my mom packaging up her uh, Beyonce's last box set. It was so funny. That's amazing. Yeah. This is a proper, serious manufacturing mm. operation of a yeah, yeah. huge scale and worth every record. But when you started to do it, did you truly know the, the extent you'd have to go to be able to, to make this beautiful piece of vinyl? A, a lot of the other parts of Third Man were baby steps, and this was like a giant leap. Yeah. Like, if you're gonna do this, you have to do steam, uh, boiler, you know, the whole blah, 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 all the presses. We couldn't even get presses when we were building out the room and we couldn't get the presses. Yeah. And then we found a company called New Built that were making handmade presses out in Germany. So we bought eight of those and started with that. And now we've got multiple 
automated machines and handmade machines. You pressed yours on the, uh, the manual machine, which is my favorite because you can do these weird variants in colors. The variant, you can put it anywhere in the, within that circle and it's gonna affect the way it comes out and the tone and the feel of it, the whole thing. Yeah, and that's why uh, you start learning different things. I mean, like black vinyl, the reason why black vinyl became the, the standard for all records is because it's the best sounding vinyl. It's bizarre, you put it on in a mastering room, we'll put a black vinyl on there and put a, a glow-in-the-dark one, or for example, glow-in-the-dark is notoriously bad sounding. Yeah. It's very cool to see it. It's just something about the composition of the PVC wow. or the, the materials to make it that glow-in-the-dark just makes it sound terrible. Yeah. We even did the split uh, record was half glow-in-dark, half black. So it sounds good, then it sounds bad. It sounds good, then it sounds bad. <laughs> you know I'm doing nothing to dispel your reputation as the Willy Wonka of music, right? <laughs> I guess not, yeah. I can't even describe what it's like to hold a freshly pressed record in your hand. I'll never forget that experience. It's not just Jack's records that get pressed at Third Man, and of course, they've become true tastemakers, collaborating with all kinds of artists, recording performances in the live room, and putting out special edition pressings of records and artists that they love. Hey, how you guys doing? What does it take to get a job? at Third Man. You know, what, is it, what kind of people do you look for ultimately to, to work here? I could make so many jokes right now. You I could. I can't, I can't think of anything good. You could. Though. But you're being watched right now as we speak, <laughs> FYI. It's really, uh, we're in a luxurious place where we kind of get to pick people who really love music and really love records. Where I've you know, been to other plants where you know, I have three shifts and it's really tough to find that many people to fill all that. You, I've been on plants where people are like, they don't even know what this is. That but what you're doing is, is you're actually um, creating an environment where, where a deeper understanding of what it is, it makes it far more compelling. Whereas yeah. I think a lot of times what technology tends to do is, because it, it, it has to in order to become the usable yeah. solution, it has to find a way to subtly and not so subtly do away with all that. Like, mm -hmm. it's not efficient. Sure. It's too expensive. Yeah. It takes too much time. Oh, absolutely. Blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. But actually, by coming and seeing what you've got going on here, like, I, I challenge anyone who's watching this to not realize that this is like, this is the goal. So the live stage, Yeah. we did this modular. I, I, I designed with the carpenters to try to build this where we can build the stage out and yep. actually make it yep. wider when we need to. But you've to. done so in a way that still feels fixed and, and feels old and, and kind of like organic and really like... Yeah, it looks like it's been here forever. Yeah. The microphone lines go from here to Third Man Mastering Console, and we can cut the vinyl live from stage. So this is this room and the Third Man Nashville room are the only two places in the world where you can cut a live vinyl record in front of an audience. So it's pretty unique. You've played on this stage? I have. I've Staring stage, at yourself yeah. on the wall? Exactly. No, no, we had to cover that up. But. <laughs> um, it, it, when I do see TVs and stuff around here, it's always um, just another layer of mm -hmm. history. Another la it's not a story. Yeah, yeah, it's another yeah. way to tell a story, right? Sure. I love the fact that you continue to you know, lean into and celebrate the White Stripes sure. in a place like yeah. this. I'm very lucky to uh, have been part of something that connected with people in that way. And, and it's, it's such a strange connection that people have with this band, too. I still don't fully understand why. There was a lot of... Uh, Bands, uh, you know, interesting, more interesting, more talented. And, and um, there was just, uh, you know, we went through three albums, too, before people were digging in in the mainstream. So what's that all about? I remember telling a musician the other day, like, uh, they're talking about getting a manager. I was like, wow, you know, three albums we made with the White Stripes and we toured all over the place. Nobody ever came up and said, hey, I'd love to manage you guys. And no record label, major label came up to say, wow, have you guys ever thought about signing with a major? Three albums and, you know, touring the country constantly. No one ever said anything like that to us. So... Of course we didn't think anyone would care in the mainstream about what we did. Mm. So it's still a mystery to me. Why is this one up here? What this is, uh, I, I wanted to have like for the, the history of Detroit in the cast corridor where we are, to have the MC5 and the White Stripes and the Gories. 
uh, you know, three generations of Detroit music that all created music in this neighborhood. I mean, this is at the Gold Dollar a block away. This is at Willis Art Gallery. And the MC5 is at Wayne State at Tartan Field uh, performing live. Or super shows. close, like the proximity. Yeah, they're really close to this location here. So just wanted to give uh, people who walk in just a little bit of a history lesson of where this is all coming from and why, we're, why we actually built it in this location. The gold dollar burned down, did it? Did it it did burn down, yes. Mysteriously burned down. We were uh, offered to buy it, too, and I didn't know. It was almost kind of like it's like the CBGBs of Detroit you yeah. know, uh, to, to our scene. I just didn't know how we would, you know, it's almost like, how do you open it, but I'll keep it the way it was, yeah, you yeah. know, it was really run down and dingy, and, yeah. uh, but also, you know. Can we so, go see it? Yes, let's go take a look at what's the, the empty lot where it once was. <laughs> yeah, mysteriously. It's probably a good time to point out that this is actually my first ever visit to Detroit as a fan of the music and the stories that have come out of this city. It was amazing being out on the streets and really being able to get a sense of why the music and the art sounds and looks and feels the way that it does. Jack could sense that I was just trying to absorb as much as possible, so we took a detour to the Pioneer Building where Third Man actually began. What is Detroit to you now, though, dude? I mean, now you live in Nashville and then you come back, and but this is where you formed all those memories and all those yeah. experiences. Like, what is this place? It's just wild because I love the resurgence that's happening right now, the renaissance that's yeah. happening again. It's been, we've been waiting like 40 years for this, yeah. and now it's finally happening. So this was my shop windows. What year is this for you? Oh, man, this is like 97. Okay, and this is the first HQ when you were focusing on upholstery. This is the yeah. man upholstery. The upholstery, I did sculpture here, so it was sort of, it's all artist studios, the whole building, so I thought it was pretty outstanding. And, oh, man, the rent was so great. It was like almost like 180 bucks a month yeah. or something. So I was like, easy, wow, right? I can really just actually pay the bills with this job, this career possibly, mm. in this room. So. so this conversation would be very different three years ago, four years ago even, because we would have been talking more about your first love, something that you fell into that you loved, but you weren't necessarily active at as yeah. much. But you've picked it up during quarantine again. Yeah, right for back sure. In it. That's right. Yeah, the, the, the first year, I was like, I'm just, if we're not touring, that means I'm not going to make an album. And that means like, well, I shouldn't really, I didn't really want to get excited about songs and then see them sit in the can for two years. Yeah. So I was like, eh, I'll just give it a break for a minute, work on some other things. I'm like, oh, wait, wow. I've been saying for years, it's, I wish I had more time to work on furniture, yeah. and now I finally do. Yeah, Here so what was the is, first so. piece? Where did, it, where did it start up again for you? There was several, but one of them was uh, it's called My Sonic Temple, mm. and uh, that was a really cool uh, piece where you, you could actually plug an instrument into the bench and sounds will come out of it. It's an amplifier, amplified system, but it makes it distorts and does strange things to the signal that goes in it. And, um, so you never know what you're going to get. You know what you're going to get. It's like an analog yeah. synthesizer. It kind of is, and, you, and, you, and it's, uh, I, I didn't even tell Johnny Walker who I made it for. I didn't even tell him what was in it. I didn't want him to know what it is that's creating the sounds. So uh, it's something I can use in the studio if they need something strange and yeah. you want to get to a different place. That's a big thing, though, and that's one of the things I think that very early on when people realize that, that kind of folklore of, of what you would hide, what you and Brian would hide yeah. inside the chairs. Yeah, yeah. It uh, continues to this day. You, you still know what do I mean? it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I almost think that the pieces are just more sculpture than furniture, really, because the, what the interiors have been something that I just spend so much intricate amount of time on uh, that no one will ever see. And it's um, I just something I get, I, get, I get a real inspiration from it. It's a mystery, and you never know who will see it. I know that I, whenever I would open pieces of furniture, I always thought, 
got to be nice if we wrote notes to each other, upholsters, just between us. Did you ever find you know? anything inside a piece of furniture or say anything else? Oh, God, I found, I found so many things. I was telling somebody a story. Yeah, I found a $50 bill once and found you know, a little statue at a time and, and, you know, rings, you know, jewelry, all that kind of jazz. But mostly it's grotesque. Yeah. Mostly you yeah. don't, don't want to be there yeah. when you open a couch up. Yeah. It's pretty gross. Probably every meal for the last 50 years that was eaten on that couch. Well, there's also this disappointment too, because like say the, the, the hundred pieces, I think we put them in the Muldoon pieces, the upholsterer's records. There's many that were made around that sign there was nothing in. So we, we were getting off on the idea of destruction with, with no results possibly or maybe you got in there and you found the record but it's yeah. stapled yeah. to the wood yeah. you if you took it off you wouldn't be able to play it anyway yeah uh, you know things like that we made a transparency uh, uh see-through uh sleeve so that even if you x-rayed it you could it would see through it you know metaphorically but you know just getting into all those kind of ideas. What's well, the experience of the art, right? I mean, we, we, we love to hold the art, put it on the wall, put yeah. it on the turntable, yeah. do something with our own hands with it. But yeah. the experience, I think that's the, that's the thing I'm getting from a lot of what you applied yourself to, whether it's Third Man Records, the pressing plant, the mastering room. Yeah getting back into upholstery, it's, it's the experience. Yeah, I think so. And it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, many, many times I would like, we can come over here, actually. I used to sit over here and have lunch and uh, it's like you could sit here and maybe think this might be not really inspiring at all and for some reason I found this incredibly inspiring you know the train going by and this old brick alleyway and you know the other artists coming in and out of the building and it sort of thought like I wouldn't want any better than this this is as good as this is gonna get for me and I like I could spend the rest of my life in this studio and I think when you kind of get that kind of resolution resolve with yourself if you can find satisfaction in this scenario you're really good and everything else is just icing on the cake yeah because that's the thing you could have right but you chose not to you had to make a conscious decision at some point that music was going to be that part of your life yeah whether it worked out or not there was times where i would bring a guitar here to this studio and it was a mistake you know like i've got to get some work done uh on this piece and i i, I would I, I gotta remember to take that guitar home at the end of the day and put it uh, back. So, you know, there's no one there teaching me that discipline. There's no boss saying, get back to work. You have to tell yourself to get back to work. Yeah. And that's... That's where it comes from, the discipline. Absolutely give yeah. me my discipline because there's a bill to pay at the end of the week and I, I've got to do this. So, you know, get off the guitar, get back to the, the couch. That's a difference uh, between, say, if you're in a band or if you're in a band with a manager, or if you're a band who has a producer, or if a record label's calling mm. the shots or there's a budget constraint or whatever. People have these outside uh, constrictions happening to them and, and motivations. Mm. When you're a solo artist and people give you a lot of freedom, uh, you got to you got to be on your own case. You know, you got to get on your own back, and that's. I'm glad I learned that when I was younger. You think back back to those times when you were sort of upholstering, and, and in particular when you were kind of figuring it all out with Brian. Mm. It's hard for me, to, you know, reminding myself of your story and hearing all the stories we've heard today, not to kind of really think that a, a lot of this revolves around that relationship with Brian and yeah. and and those really important formative years where you didn't feel crazy, right? Somebody gave you that opportunity. I was seeking out mentors all the time, probably because of my, the older brothers in my family. They were my mentors too. And I was always seeking them out. I was always hanging out with older artists over here in Hamtramck, right nearby, uh, playing in the coffee houses there and talking to uh, people like that, working with this carpenter and working with Brian and always looking for some guidance. And maybe that's the thing that you could still do then in a easier, was easier to find a mentor and whatever, maybe learning trades and yeah. learning art, art, art from, from somebody else. Uh, I hope that's a thing that's still around nowadays. I hope we haven't become distant. 
in culture where we, we, where we don't recognize the, the importance of mentors. So my first time here in the city, I'm so grateful that we can do it here because yeah. I've always wanted to visit Detroit and you were sort of raised here, um, Southwest Detroit. And I sort of wonder, you know, having left and made a home elsewhere, but making sure that you still have roots here mm -hmm. and a reason to come back. Apart from Third Man and everything else, mm -hmm. what you really come back for and, and what you left behind when you left, you know, what parts of Detroit did you not want to take with you? What parts did you miss and you, and you love coming back to? Uh, the parts that I didn't like with this was the cynicism. You know, and we came from, you know, the garage rock scene was, you know, very hipster and very cynical. So it was hard to sort of like uh, crack through that at times. And because cynicism in a lot of ways, maybe people can consider it realistic, but in a lot of ways it comes off as just really negative, you know. Yep. But also the, what came out of that scene, that garage rock movie we came out of was so uh, wise about great music mm. and great art. Mm. They, they taught me so much, all of my friends in that scene, they were so well-versed, you know, the people who I know are musicians, people who worked at record stores, people who worked at, you know, art, you know, art galleries, and, and you could, uh, there was cynicism there, but but there's still the great knowledge of what is good. Mm. You know, oh, you want to hear R&B record, check out this Northern Soul 45. If you want to hear uh, Garage Rock, you got to hear this one. Yeah, song you just got to unlock the key to get into the room where that purity exists. Yes, exactly. And then when you find it, it's great, you know, because yeah. I, I kind of thought, wow, this wouldn't have been great to come home after school and listen to records with these guys. I wish these were my friends when I was 15, 16. That made you know, work for it though. Yeah, I, I, yeah really, for, for real, it, it was great. I really appreciated it. I still have those friends today, luckily. And um, it's, it's, it's you know, probably because of how much I respect that, how much they gave to me mm. uh, that I can use when I'm creating uh, on a day to day. This must be the perfect place for you to be because everywhere you look, you see possibility. Yeah, it's great. In, in the last few years, last five, six years, the, the city's just had such a renaissance and it's just so great. We, we've been waiting for this since the, the riots in the late 60s that we, we've been waiting for this to come back in this moment and it's finally happening. And I love being a part of it with the pressing plan and third man location, you know, creating jobs in the neighborhood, trying to make something beautiful in the neighborhood that was notoriously like the, the roughest neighborhood in the, in the city. And it's so beautiful to be part of that history and to keep to keep extending and, and take it for another 10 years, another 20 years if we can. You actually yeah. do that, man. I mean, you know, what you did with the Masonic Temple. Mm. Were you happy or bemused or even a little disappointed that it got out, that you had <laughs> contributed to the restoration and the, and the survival of that place? Because I know you tried to do it anonymously. I guess I don't mind in the end it would, they, because it's, it's all for the right reasons. It's for a good cause and, and, and uh, there was uh, so many things about that. You know, my, I think my mom told me a story about selling, she was working the candy counter when David Bowie played there. You know, this is a couple years before I was born, you know, and um, he was making extra money on the side from being a secretary. And then uh, the concerts my, my brothers and sisters went to, The Who, and mm. well, over a thousand rooms in that building. It has the most number of rooms. What? And um, it's pretty wild. And That's the Lone crazy. Ranger radio show was done out of there. and. But they were really kind about it, and uh, I was glad that it was, it was the right moment and right time I was able to help and keep yeah. it alive. Are there places that you've contributed to keeping alive that we don't know and we'll never know about? Oh. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right, so being back yeah. in here then, how does it feel? It's incredible, man. It's great because that pole I, I painted black. These are some remnants here of just some... Someone gave me a box of Bazooka Joke bubblegum, and I used to read the comics and staple them right here, the ones I thought were funny. And um, this is from a sculpture called Payload that I did. And uh, this is a bottom uh, glide from a 
dining room chair. You're not a reflective guy when it comes to like what you're working on, and so I, it's kind of interesting being back in a place like this and watching your reaction because it's like yeah. it's, it, I can see it's kind of moving you to some degree. Okay. It's, you know what's so great is just like your brain remembers the patterns of bricks and yeah. things like this. This board comes up in my laying in bed at night. This board right here. Oh, you see? <laughs> yeah, it. all the time. Yeah, and it's sort of wild because. Um, I was going to do a project where I find people's childhood bedrooms and, and take a photo of the ceiling above where their bed would have been mm -hmm. and frame it and give it to them as a present. Because that's what you looked at. I mean, how, how much yeah. time you shot it you spend staring up at yeah, that? Yeah, that's you know? your first canvas. Yeah, so I would love to go, go like find like maybe, you know, 30 or 40 people that are close to me and see if I could you know, make a, a trip out of it and, and go around doing that someday. Do you still have a vivid recollection of what yours looked like? Yes, very much. I can see why you were really happy here. This is a really artistic space. Yeah. You know, you feel like you're kind of in, the, in a city, but you're tucked away enough where it's not affecting your, your yeah. process. Yeah, it, it didn't feel like, you know, either like it was, it was kind of off the beaten path enough. You weren't going to get, you know, broken in and stole, all my equipment was going to get stolen or anything. Yeah. It was still in the, in the industrial section of town, but maybe safe enough where I could actually keep the, bill, keep the lights on and keep paying the bills. So this is where Third Man really began. It really, uh, yeah, it really has because I kind of started in my basement and then uh, this was the first place where I had my own studio, my own shop. That's the original yellow from the wall. What? That is, it is. These were all yellow. This was gray and I had yellow and white stars randomly spray painted on the floor. You had it all figured out <laughs> from day one. Yeah, the idea of the yellow and the three and the whole thing, and you stay true to that. It felt strong to me then, but I think a lot of people didn't take me seriously because of it. Because you know, showing up to there with a yellow van and dressed in yellow and black clothes, and they didn't really, you know, they thought maybe I did the, you know, a lot of the bills in crayon. It was almost like that was a painting, the bill, and it, I, a lot of people didn't take it seriously. You know, like maybe that maybe I shouldn't hire this kid. But uh, you know, the ones that call you back, and you know, if they call you back and you do another piece for them, you, yeah. know, you, you must have done something right. Part of him never left, but the rest of him went on to form White Stripes. This deep and personal relationship, this chemistry that made exciting and visceral sounding music and had one of the most unlikely success stories in modern music, got its start on a stage in a bar called Gold Dollar, which is now an empty lot. Well, this was a location where, I mean, we saw this back yeah. at Third Man. This is where White Stripes, you cut your teeth yeah. at the Gold Dollar. First, first shows ever. White Stripes open mic night here. And Why we, here? Just because someone asked you, or it was available? Or? Yeah, it was a friend uh, knew the owner. He was, hey, he's reopening this uh, what used to be a drag queen bar. Yes, yeah, right. Uh, it used to be a drag queen bar called the Gold Dollar, and, and he was reopening it. And we went and just to have a drink, I think, and check it out. But he was like, oh yeah, it's open mic night. Hey, let's come back. I want you, hey, you know, Meg, we should do that thing we were messing around with. Maybe we should play a couple songs. I thought she's never gonna say yes, and she did. She said yes. Oh my God, hurry up, let's hurry up and do it before she changes her mind. And uh, yeah, I was right, the stage was on that side. It only held about 100 people. I think it said, you know, the, the, the code capacity was 109 people, I think. Just amazing shows. It really was the sort of CBGBs of the Detroit garage scene. Did you feel it straight away, playing with Meg, straight away? Oh yeah, yeah, it felt powerful right off the bat. It just felt cool. But I didn't think it was going to be something other people would like, but I thought, I think that I really like the feeling of this. It feels so dirty and, and, and like uh, just raw and simplified. You know, I wasn't trying to play like uh, complicated guitar solos or learning seven chord changes or anything like that. It was just really visceral. And, and I was more and more, let's dig deeper and get more Detroit sounding yeah. more on it. The, the garage punk 
movement of like the six, 1966 era, that was really coming to uh, full froth with all of our friends loving all and searching for all those nuggets uh, collections. Listening to those records, yeah. getting inspired, wanting to conjure up that energy. Mm-hmm. It, yep. It's very sort of um, visceral, those sounds. Yeah, those yeah. records really, like, yeah. and I think that's one of the things that kind of struck me the first time I ever heard the Stripes was just how I, I felt like I could hear the machinery at work. Oh, yeah, Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like the guitar, I could hear the ant, the way I could hear the lead, I could hear the hum, I could hear the whole thing was just so textural. Right. I'm glad you hear that. That's, that's, that makes me feel good because it felt like how can you know we, we started to get into a, a, a mode there like how can we make this more Detroit sounding? And the very first White Stripes album, the goal in my brain was like I want this to sound like the city, the, the streets we just walked down. Yeah, uh, I want it to sound like that, like decay, yeah. right? Like like if, if you push it any further. It's going to evaporate. Yeah, I like, think Iggy would say, like the metal factory, the Ford Rouge plant, the, yeah. the vibe of that, the sound of the metal clanging, all of that felt like what, what you wanted it to be. Do you think Meg loved it as much as you did in the beginning? Uh, no, I never got that impression. I got the impression of just sort of, okay, I guess so, you know, killing time. And there was moments where I think she was quite proud of herself and she was doing something she'd never done before, so that would made seemed to make her happy and it definitely made me I was impressed and happy yeah. for her so that was great can you make sense of the, of the mythology around White Stripes now now that it's been some time I mean we're over 10 years since you called time on it I, I, I'm surprised people are still get something out of it and, um, and it surprised me then and it surprises me now so it's there's never been a moment where I felt like, yeah, that's a good song. People should like that. Really? <laughs> I've never, never have felt that. I'm always like, well, that's felt good to me. I, I will see. Do you we'll ever see. listen to the record still? Do you go back and ever listen to the? Well, albums? you know, when I do, the only time I really do is when I when I want to go out on tour to try to see what if, or remember how to do certain parts and stuff. But uh, other than that, it's. Um, I think it takes a few years. You you kind of like pick on it. You, you hear on the radio like, oh, that should have been a different kick drum oh, sound so or harsh. something like that. It's yeah. the worst part. I mean, yeah. every time I talk to artists about this, that trade, that moment where you give the music to us and we get to like put, put it on a pedestal. Sure. Meanwhile, you're constantly finding reasons to pick it and <laughs> knock it down. Yeah, you, so you, you gotta let go. Like, you gotta you, let go. You say that records aren't finished, they're just turned in. You just kind of let go of it and, and wash yeah. your hands and walk, walk away and move on. And, and, and that's probably the best thing about it. It's, it's the it's when you can't let go, when you can't tell yourself to stop, and you're probably in a, I feel like you were letting place. go during it. That's mm. the crazy thing. I mean, now we're here and we're seeing where it started mm. from a live perspective. Mm. I feel like um, you were giving us every reason to, to call time on it. You were like, you know, okay, Elephant, that's a weird success story. Yeah, yeah. Then let me follow that up with an album that was almost challenging people. Like, well, if you, if, if, you, know, if you love that, then sure. you may not love this. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah. people, but you know, Festivals and arenas just kept getting bigger and bigger. Did it just get too big, do you think, looking back on it? I never felt to, sometimes we'd play like a, maybe an arena and it was like, oh, maybe we're not an arena kind of band. But then other times we would play Madison Square Garden and it seemed yeah. like it was exactly right. I couldn't figure it out. I still can't. I mean, I prefer playing in smaller places. I prefer playing in the clubs like that this was and smaller theaters rather than arenas. But but also there's moments where on on stage at Glastonbury or on stage at Madison Square Garden or Masonic Temple that um, were magical and they felt good. And maybe it was better. And maybe he's like, yeah, bring more people in the room. What's the most we could get I mean, in there so we can all share in something? It's wild. You never know what the mob is going to bring into the room. You know, like the people. It could come in and it could be just kind of a quiet Sunday night or it could be the most electrifying earth shattering life-changing experience and yeah. so it's that's what's kind of cool about playing shows you don't really know what's going to happen you shouldn't 
you shouldn't know what's going to happen, I, I should say. And I never really knew how, how you sort of felt between 07 and 11, how, what those years were yeah. like for you. Yeah. Whether you were like, I've got to just play a patient card here, yeah. or you sort of knew that it was going to end, or that you knew when you played Conan, that's our last show. Sure. It, uh, it, it, it wasn't sure of it. I thought maybe, maybe it was, and then, but I was so involved in so many other things, it was like, oh, it's okay. If it had been my only band and my own thing going on, it would be very, very heartbreaking. Uh, but I, I, I've, I've always been creative in, in different ways, luckily, and at that time, you know, I had the Rack and Tours or the Dead Weather, and then I was started to do a solo record. Yeah. It's just too much stuff, you know? Yeah. And uh, you never know what you could have alternate universes where different things would happen. But I think it felt good because it felt like, it's not like, it would have been bad if you say like, oh, we made three horrible albums in a row and no. just beating the life out of something or turned into a nostalgia act or any of those things. So we, we were lucky none of that happened. But it's, no, it's beautiful. And I think putting the greatest hits out was a really lovely touch yeah. and it, it gave us something that, it just, it just gave us a sense that you were ultimately, you and Meg, were and, and remain really proud of that mm. whole time. Yeah, it was great because also Meg was really involved in the, uh, the greatest hits process too. That was nice to see uh, her uh, get excited about that. And uh, it, it felt good in, in an era where people aren't really making greatest hits records. It was kind of a nice thing to do. It was almost an, another like... It has a nostalgia moment. It was like, yeah, it was it was a like almost like rebellious to, to do that. It seems kind of strange, but uh, yeah, yeah I, I'm glad we did that. Um, so you got these two albums coming out this year. You have a, a tour that's on sale, sold out. Everyone's excited to come see you play live. You've reduced the band. It's going to be, I mean, I just can't wait to see you make it up on the spot again. <laughs> that's the thing that blows my mind. Well, what's good is that I, I, I want to um, see what it's like, see what the crowds are like post the pandemic, yeah. post, the, post the lockdown. I, I, I've gone to a couple shows and it's felt pretty good. I've got another interview to do here in a second. Yeah. How you doing, buddy? Howdy. Hi. Who the hell does your hair? <laughs> this is my hairdresser right here. This is my. Do you like it? Yeah, look good. Hey, are we all trying? We just give me such chance. And thank you. We love you, Yoko. This is all just gonna. I mean, in five years, this is gonna be completely different, right? Yeah, I think it's already halfway there. It's really. We're gonna turn around where there's not, uh, you know, opportunists who are like buying a lot like this and just holding on it and sitting on it. That's what was happening for a long time in Detroit, where people would buy an abandoned building and sit on it and not do anything with it. And that, those days are starting to go away, which is great. Jack, you know, you take so much of the past that you love and you adapt it to the present day and ultimately kind of create a future for it, an opportunity for it. So the question is, where do you spend the most amount of your time? In the past, in the present, or in the future? Where do you really dwell the most? When I work on music, I, I, I always feel like I'm trying to do something new. But I know quite often I'm taking things that I think worked from the past that I think are less well-known, and they're interesting or idiosyncratic or whatever it is, and juxtaposing it with something I've never done before that's brand new, and, I, and see if I can f blend the two together. You see that I think a lot when we're walking around Third Band too, like the old recording booth. But you know, we can do this and then uh, figure out a way so that people can post it online and post the fans' uh, record that they made in this booth in the 1940s online right now digitally yeah. on Instagram. There's newness that can not just be like, oh, I don't want to have anything to do, anything pastiche, anything to do with anything that ever happened before. I said, like, no, it's good to acknowledge the history and join the family, jump in the river that's already moving, rather than to pretend like there is no river and I'm going to build my own building on the side of it. So you, you, you just got to jump in and, and swim, I think. 
But you have built your own buildings. <laughs> Literally. It's kind of like, yes, yeah, but it's, it's sort of like, maybe that's, no, there's something over there. Maybe we have to figure out how to draw this out because maybe there's some good metaphor there. Yeah, the river's going by and, and, um, and uh, we're building something right next to it. And, but it, it, it's acknowledgement of what's happened before yeah. and acknowledging trying to do something brand new. It's easy to be in like a rockabilly band or be in a surf band. I, you say, I love, I love surf music and I want to play in the surf band. There's nothing wrong with that. That's great. You know, it's good. But if you want to do something new to turn people on and get people's imagination going, you have to, you have to blend different things together and, and attempt to break new ground. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, you can have a surf solo in the middle of something that's brand new yeah. that no one's ever heard before. And then now you're going, now you're in a whole new place. You know, that's what I, that's sort of the place I try to live in. Jack White is not only an inspiring artist, but he's also an incredibly gracious host and we'll never forget our day in Detroit walking around the old spots and the new. We get the records and the performances and if you're really lucky, the furniture, but Jack White gets the experience. That's the trade. Thanks again for listening to the Zane Lowe interview series. As always, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts and dive deep into the archives of conversations Zane has had with Charlie XCX, Rosalia, David Byrne, and Lil Nas X, to name a few. Zane will be back next week, but until then, stay safe and stay well. <laughs>